Hey, this is Chris from After the Story. This episode you're about to listen to is also one of our first ones. Here, a little rough around the edges, back before we had mics, and even really a format. So it is going to be a little bit more synoptic, where we just kind of go through the story, rather than uh, the format that we have later on. If that bothers you, then wait for another episode. Otherwise, dive in. Welcome to... I think it's After the Story, right? I think that's what we're going with. After the Story ends. I think that's the after the story we're still figuring out ourselves guys yeah so our, anyway. all our our fellow listeners yeah our loyal fans wanted to talk about the original well it's not the original three but the three little trilogy of the driss duorden uh his kind of origin story by r.a salvatore salvatore i'm not really sure I think it's salvatore it. but salvatore. probably should have looked that up before but yeah. you know we're still <laughs> <laughs> We're going to try to do a trilogy in one episode. We'll see how it goes. Because they, they do kind of flow into each other. The books themselves are, they're not super long. It's kind of simple. So we should be able to, should be able to make it work. Get through it quick. And there's not, yeah, not a lot of complicated ideas going on. It's pretty straightforward. Do you want to go through the synopsis of them? Uh, yeah. So starting out, like, like Chris said, book one is very much the origin story. It's, you know, how Driz came about, where he first came from. He was his child born in the time of, a family war and he was supposed to be sacrificed but he ultimately wasn't and this kind of follows his story after that and kind of how he became this you know more powerful ranger and how he learned his abilities with his swords and then how he ultimately made his decisions to move on from his hometown the book two is really goes about what happens after the events in the first book and what exactly is going on in his life and what is he having to deal with because of that and it really dives into different themes in the first book. I, that's what I do like about all three books is I feel they explored th- very different aspects of, you know, characters and personalities and traits very differently. And then it's just his struggles in that underdark, in that setting where he is by himself now and how is he going to survive? And then finally, the third book is kind of his coming out and him finding his new way into this real world and no longer being stuck in this evil, dark, underdark and rather going off into the world and seeing what it's about and seeing what these different cultures and races have to bring to the table. The first one, it's just so much of a sort of like black and white origin story. And then the second one, it starts getting, you know, maybe a little bit more complicated. And the third one, it's, it's like kind of becomes much more of a real world. It's still pretty, um, you know, there's good and then there's the evil side and stuff like that, but it's more, a little bit more nuanced and much more broad of a world you see being built. General thoughts, I thought, uh, you know, it's a solid origin story. Uh, there's good twists on the hero's journey that we'll, we'll get to. Kind of made it, R.A. Salvatore made this his own. There, I think there's a reason why this is the most popular of the D&D fiction characters. He does, a, the books themselves are, are solid, but the character is is pretty cool. And there's some human elements in there that we actually see rather than him being like kind of perfect yeah Uh, it's also i was just gonna say it's also real quick it was written in the 90s which this is a DD book DD fiction uh and that's around the time of second edition i don't know a ton about second edition so we'll see I, i that obviously affected it somehow i'm just not sure in what way yeah i definitely think that salvatore you can totally see where he comes from with his characters and i think that's his biggest point is he writes really good characters, really nuanced characters, 
and nobody is just one dimensional. Everyone has different aspects to them and why they are the way they are. Nobody is just this way because of this. There's always some motivation behind that. And I think that's really important when writing characters. And I think he does that extremely well. And like you said, the stories, while nothing too crazy, I think they do do a really good job of being nice condensed stories that you can kind of get through quickly and you can understand it's not going to be this grand epic journey every single time. You're getting bits and pieces of this guy's life and how he gets to the point where he's at. Yeah, that's something I thought was really cool is, it, you know, it's not Lord of the Rings. It's not this grand, huge journey. It's just, it's very much, I think we kind of uh, wrote this down somewhere. It's much more, it's pretty contained. Like each story is pretty contained with their own segment of the world. It's, it definitely seems like something an early level adventure, adventuring party would, would go through. Absolutely. And that's, that's one of my favorite parts about it is I didn't need this grand superhero. I loved seeing his development and seeing, I love, you know, the aspects of he's in the school and he's training there and then how he goes beyond that. And when he finally faces up, you know, to the better enemies. From here on, uh, the rest is, uh, we're going to go into spoilers. So if you haven't read the book, go read them or books, plural, go read them. Or don't read them and just listen to what we have to say about it. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so first up, we've got the tone. Going to try to figure out how to do this in the three books without jumping around too much. But the first one, I it felt to me sort of like a mafia movie in a sense. Because there's a lot of intrigue. It revolves a lot around uh, these that you kind of have these different family powers. So, you know, it's pretty much entirely takes place in Menzo Baranzon, the city in the Underdark, uh, Dark Elves, that sort of thing. Drist is a Dark Elf. The city is run by these different families and it's very much crime family type aesthetic. They, they're all pretty, pretty evil. The only real law in Menzo Baranzon is if you get caught doing doing something then you can be punished but if you can get away with it and there's like yeah there's like rumors over it whatever but it's not objectively out in the open then it's fine you can oh, yeah, see that with how the book opens up that's exactly where I was going to go with that that from the start you automatically see right away one family is trying to destroy another family so they can gain power and not only that but within that, you have one of the members of the family killing another member of the family so that he can gain more power. And so it's just this consistent idea of you can just immediately see how everyone is power hungry and everyone is at that little tinge of evil in them. And everyone's kind of out for themselves. But it's this greater idea of it's just these crime, like these different crime families and how they're interacting with one another. It's the younger brother of Driz's family kills his older brother in the in the kind of opening act and that is the impetus as to why drist even exists because he he's the third kid uh, male child so they're supposed to sacrifice him but because the older brother is killed now there's only two again and so they don't have to there's a lot of stuff with um you know you go into a lot of the dnd lore and that sort of thing you don't know too much about that this is also, it's in the Forgotten Realms, which they have their own lore system and that sort of thing. The Dark Elves all follow this god, Lolf, the Spider Queen, who there's there's a lot of there's a lot of background stuff where the Dark Elves used to be regular elves and they started following Lolf and they got corrupted and all this kind of stuff. But as part of that, they 
do these sacrifices and sort of thing, they're always competing to be in Loth's favor. Yeah, and it, I mean, that just goes even more into their ideals of not only are they seemingly evil, the, the being they serve is evil. And the, the, the reason they're doing so much of what they're doing is because, oh, well, you know, our God, this pleases our God. Us growing higher in the hierarchy is like, that makes our God happy. And us betraying these other families is good for us. And that really overtakes the whole first book. That is the really big premise of in this evil society, can good exist? And how does one go about being good in the society? And how does one escape from such an evil society? And yeah, I think that I really would, is the big tone for the first book. I would definitely agree. So the second one, which is Sojourn. No, the second one's Exile, right? Exile is the second one, yep. Yeah. Which is a really proper title for it because- Oh, for you sure. Have, you have Driz out in his own. And I think uh, loneliness is a very big point in this second book and him dealing with that. Like we wrote down, mental health, super big in this book. You have Driz trying to find his own place and he's so alone that he even eventually- puts himself in a situation where he could be killed. He could be um, imprisoned for life, but he does it because he can no longer stand being by himself. That and this idea of just constantly, like I, I, we wrote down adventure and the hunt. And it's just this idea that he's constantly being hunted and he's not safe anywhere in the Underdark. And I mean, we had Chris over here ran a campaign for us where that exact thing happened the entire time. No matter <laughs> where we went, we were being found by these, um, this legion of harpies. And every single time we finally thought we were oh, no, safe. No, no, no. Planet. It was, uh, oh, it was it Valkyries. Was, yeah, these Goliath Valkyries. Because it was sort of Norse myth themed. Because I had just got finished playing the new God of War. And I was like, you know, uh, well, and that, and I'm a big fan of Norse mythology anyway. I was like, you know, I can, uh, I, I want to run something like this. So, so it's the, yeah, it's the idea of no matter where you are, you're not safe. And that's exactly how it was with Driz. No matter where he went, his family was still trying to find him. And that's the whole reason as to why he like felt so lonely and that kind of thing, because the only people he really knew were out trying to kill him. So it's just him running around with his panther and we'll get to that later. But yeah, he's very much all alone. And while it is sort of a side quest type book, I think it's really good because it shows a lot of character development for Drizzt because it goes through kind of mention the mental health, but the, his mind state after escaping from this mafia crime family-esque situation of like what that does to a person and where how he's able to recover no yeah i totally agree and that yeah like you said side quest i definitely feel the second book is the biggest side quest in all of them because you don't i mean you do get a lot of character development but nothing too big happens so well, character development some stuff happens so. that's in the background that might come in later, but it's not, I don't know. For this trilogy, it's yeah. just, it's kind of closing the door on everything that happened in the first book and getting him to transition into what's going to happen for the rest of his life and where he's going next. Yeah, for sure. Which gets into the third book, which is Sojourn. This is definitely like your adventure this is when he is actually truly like a DD character you know he gets out of his origin story he's going on his adventure trying to explore the morality of you know coming out of the underdark and seeing how the surface world is different where in the underdark pretty much everything is out for themselves everything is dangerous uh to a large extent except you know there, he meets the deep gnomes and that's a little bit different but to a large extent, everything's out for itself and like in pretty, pretty evil and underdark. So he gets out on the surface world and there's a lot, 
there's a bit more like gray. There's a bit more of, uh, you know, people trying to survive, but also help each other and building societies and that sort of thing. Is it's it's different and it's the, kind of the culture shock, which is kind of, which is pretty cool. Uh, we were talking earlier. I think the first one is really good. Cameron was saying this third book is probably his favorite with how it shows how different the people are and their motivations. And that's a big thing with the theme about this book is like the motivations, you get into some of the other gods with that. But then it's also continues the second book where he's still sort of alone for a lot of it. And it's him trying to find like his people still. I think whereas motivation is this idea in the background in the first two books, because it's, it's constantly talked about, but it's not exactly directly thought. And you get into the third book, and that's when you're really starting to see, well, these groups of people hate this person because of this. And I feel the way I feel because of this, or I, because I believe in this God, I'm going to do this. And that's really explored a lot more in depth in this book. And you even have, you have instances where it talks about, well, this race is all evil. Like, and then he, like, even I have our main character talking to some of them. And then you see right away, all they want to do is kill and fight. But then you have other people who are assumed to be evil or bad. And then you really get to talking to them. And you finally find out that it's not all bad. Not everyone there is evil. And they're just all trying to find their own place in it. And like you said, it really explores even more in depth of, you know, the gods and why people are acting the way they are. And kind of this idea of you are serving some God in some degree. You just don't realize it. Yeah, I thought I thought that bit was really cool. It's something whenever I've run D&D campaigns, that sort of thing, it's always like, okay, well, what God does your character kind of follow and that sort of thing? And no one really thinks about it, it, it except for paladins and clerics. But I like how this book puts it where in the world, because the gods are just so prevalent, like you do, it, it, man, the way they talked about the religion was really interesting of you follow the god based on your tenets even if you don't know it exactly yeah all the gods interact with the world based off their tenets and what they what they their domains are which i thought i thought was really was a really interesting idea yeah i think thematically the third book definitely trumps the other two in terms of there's a lot more thought put into everything and why everyone is the way they are yeah i i i'd i'd probably agree so that kind of leads us to the, the cast of characters we got in the in the three books the most they're pretty much the same for the first two like all the characters are kind of the same um but not, not yeah you, you have a continuation way. yeah because we have some characters that come back from the first book that you barely knew and they're bigger characters and then obviously some characters that take a more of a backseat role in the second book so I, we could probably do you know the first book then the second book then the third book for this one so the first one, the, the really the main characters is the family. You've got his family is the Doerden Do clan, yeah. uh, led by the matriarch. They kind of with following the Spider Queen as I guess it's kind of based off uh, like the Black Widows, where the it's the female that has the most power and the like. I think do Black Widow widows kill the male after they mate? Or is that... I think so, yeah. I, I know it's praying mantises, but I think it's yeah. also Black Widows. Yeah, so they kind of follow that, where uh, it's this matriarch, which, I mean, I don't know. It's kind of cool, because it's, it's the opposite of, like, the typical patriarchal society you see uh, in a lot of other... A lot of, all... The way a lot of other societies built. But there's the... And it's all... 
Um, and like you're saying with that, it's all based on this God, the spider, the spider queen is what they call her. And I think the Black Widow is a really good example because um, when the Black Widow has his babies, do not, don't they just eat the mother when they come out? Oh, I don't know about that. Here, let's look this up real quick because I'm pretty sure, and that would actually, I mean, that's a perfect parallel to what's going on here. Yeah, yeah, that is pretty true. While you're doing that, uh, I'll kind of introduce some of the characters. So you got Malice. If you want an evil name, I mean, that's that's it. Uh, Matron Malice, she's the leader of the clan. Pretty brutal, uh, very prideful, and that kind of leads to some of her downfall because she won't listen to any reason. She, If she has an idea and she thinks it's right, then that's like what is happening. She won't listen to anybody else if they have a different idea, which causes a lot of problems. You've got... They have a lot of, there's a, there's a good number of daughters, and they're all Clarence and Walt. That seems to be the main thing that uh, a lot of the, the daughters go and do, or especially of the um, the high-up families and that sort of thing. They all go and try to become clerics. And then there's the older brother, who I'm looking for his name in my notes, but he is also a fighter. Um, he's like a, a fighter class kind of thing. He is... Are you looking for his yeah. name? Yeah. Anyway, he's a master at Melee Magvir, the uh, fighting school. The fighting school in the, in the city. It's interesting. Even though everything's based on the family, there is a communal school system, which leads to some other things. Then you have Zach Nefane, who's secretly Driss' dad, secretly, not so secretly, like... Yeah, I know, know right? Like brought up throughout the book that, you know, Zach Nefane is this spot, this person's spot, and I was, and I, so I didn't, I wasn't really surprised when that happened. It seemed pretty evident, but... It well, was no, they literally to... say it, like, from the beginning, that he's his father, but he doesn't know. Or I don't even remember, doesn't... but yeah. So it's not really a big shock to anybody reading the book, I, guess, I suppose. I guess I just missed it yeah. but i thought i was clever reading throughout the um but he's definitely you know the moral in this in this evil world and he's kind of the one and he's trying to find his own way in there and that ends up playing into Driz's story because he watches you know his father who dealt with this for so long and his way of doing it was just to, to play along because he didn't know anything else he didn't know what else to do yeah zach hates the system so he uses the system to kill clerics of loth like that's his thing so it's really, it's really kind of cool where, you know, you have all these, and he's like one of the best fighters in the city. Like that's his thing. Uh, where while this house is not necessarily the biggest or the strongest, the one thing they do have going for them is they have a decent number of up and coming clerics of the daughters. And then they have Zach Nathane, who you see right in the beginning, like the first kind of action that happens when the, the Dordans are where, raiding another house, they shoot Zach in a air element. They turn him invisible, put him in an air elemental and like dive bomb him into the other uh, family's house. And he just goes and tears up all the clerics, all the like leadership of the family on his own, just because he's such an elite fighter. Uh, and that, that's kind of cool. And that's like, that's his thing is he hates Loth and he hates, and so his, his whole thing is like, well, I'm just going to go in and kill, kill as many clerics as I can. And that's him finding his morality in his messed up situation. Yeah. Which is, you know, and that's what he thought was best. And that ends up, again, like we said, playing into what Driz ends up doing. But also, yeah. uh, 
It's called matrifagy. I don't know. Uh, but it's mother eating is what it, it, the term refers to. And spiders do eat their mother when the body's almost depleted. So I guess it kind of does play, it, it plays into the idea of this whole society of when someone in front of you or the, like the higher power kind of starts coming down more, you seize on that opportunity and you take it and you, you know, you end up eating the powerful person and you become the more powerful person. Yeah. It's very much a like <laughs> Sith mentality, like from Star Wars. Yeah, exactly. That is a, yeah, that is a perfect um, parallel. Yeah. Example, something like that. So then you have the other big player in a lot of the, in the kind of the first two books is the Han Nets, which is another family. I think they're the, the Ordens are the ninth house, the Hanets are the eighth house or something like that. And the top eight are the ruling council. And so Matron Malice really wants to get into that ruling council. Uh, the Hanets at first are like pretty ambivalent. Like they don't really care. Uh, and they find wizard that you, that was of the family that they, the Dordans kill in the opening act. And they what's, find what's the faceless one, but what's, yeah. what's the kid's name that ends up, because you have the Hanet servant, and then you have the kid that becomes the faceless one. And those are both two pretty big players in this first story, because that's kind of Driz's main antagonist besides the society as a whole. Because that's, I mean, that, that, that's really Dean important. Dean is his brother. Dean is his brother that kills his older brother. Yeah. Because he, for me, it's important because this is the person that he, uh, he kills, and then he ends up deciding, I, I'm never, ever going to kill another dark elf again. And that's kind of his final point of, this is my morality and this is what I'm sticking to. And that comes back a ton. He's constantly referencing back to it. Every time he's really angry, he goes, no, I promised myself I wouldn't do this. Uh, I think Massage Hanet is the younger wizard. That sounds right. And so who was the kid that survived the attack at the beginning? That's Deenan. Oh, wait, are you talking about the one who becomes the faceless one? Yeah, yeah. So massage and uh, he's Alton Devere. Alton Devere, okay. Right, okay. And then we'll just pick up like we never. Yeah. So yeah, you okay? So you also have Alton Devere, who's in the first family that gets killed at the very beginning of the book. Um, he attempt is attempted to be killed by a wizard in the wizard school while he where he's like at school there. He's uh, an apprentice. Um, but then one of the Hanet kids, um, Massage. So Massage ends up saving him there in the beginning. And he's kind of like, you're going to serve me now and we're going to get out of this together. And Alton Devere is all for it because his family is gone now. And so he yeah, has to do whatever he, he can to make it. And so that's where he ends up replacing the, this person known as the faceless one where he has to legitimately burn his face with acid to pull off the whole charade of it. And he's kind of, you know, the opposite of Driz in this whole situation is we watch Driz grow up. We also watch him grow up and become this more evil and hateful person because he hates the Doordan so much. And that eventually plays out into, you know, what happens with Driz at the school and kind of Driz's final uh, take on morality with that kid. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Alton's whole thing just becomes vengeance. Like the, the only point of his life becomes vengeance. He just becomes this very hateful person. But yeah, that gets kind of the Hanets. They're they know they have this sort of leverage, but they don't really care because it's not important yet. But then it does later. Uh, another character who's introduced very vaguely in the first one, or very momentarily, but becomes very important in the second one, is this guy named Belwar Disengulp. 
is a deep gnome who they kind of capture while the deep gnomes are doing a sort of mining expedition that gets too close to Menzo Berenzon, the drow go and capture him and Driz convinces them not to kill him, but they cut off his hands. And then in the second book, he plays a pretty big part. He ends up running around a lot with Drizzt and he gets these cool, two cool enchanted hands. One's a pickaxe and one's a hammer. Yeah, and he's a good example of, you know, you get all these smaller instances with Driz where you get to see him versus how everyone else reacts. And so you have, you know, the exercise underground where they say that, you know, one of the royal family members of a, one of the families goes missing and they have to hunt it down. And then they find this monster. Driz is able to take it down by himself and they find out it wasn't some royal family member. It was just some peasant, basically. And it was all just some setup. And all, you know, all the other dark elves are really excited. Wow, Driz did it. And he's just angry because he thinks that this person's life went to waste just because they were testing them. And then you have this example with Belwar, where all of them are like, let's kill all of them. And Driz is like, why don't we just send them back? And so he has to kind of fit himself into the situation. And the only thing he can come up with is, you know, oh, well, let's send him back so they know not to mess with us. And they know that like the dark elves are coming basically. And he has to keep coming up with these ideas of why he, like how he's fitting in, why, how he's also standing out. And only we see how he's, how he's standing out, but the people around him are thinking that he's integrating himself. And the, the biggest time that plays out is when he finally goes with that, um, when they go to the surface and they finally attack that party of elves. Yeah. And everyone's over here counting their kills and Driz is horrified. And there's this little girl that's about to die. And so he ends up slashing up the girl's mother and then throwing her on top basically to hide this girl. And everyone's super excited. Oh, you killed the child. That's so awesome, Driz. And he's just horrified at what just happened, but it's the only way he can keep the girl alive and go about his way without, you know, succumbing to that evil. Yeah, it's like he failed in the first, the that first attempt with the the dark elf child, but he succeeds in the the surface raid, which was kind of cool. Uh, also, kind of introduced in the first book and becomes Dr's lifelong partner, I guess, is Guinevar, who's a magic astral planner panther, um, who is originally Massage Hanet's. He's kind of got this figurine that can summon him. <laughs> Guinevar really doesn't like Massage and ends up taking to Drizzt when uh, they work together during some of the patrols and that sort of thing. And it's kind of funny because that's that's where Massage really starts hating Drizzt. Uh, he doesn't really, you know, he doesn't really care because the Hanets and the Dwardens aren't really fighting at first until the Panther thing and he starts getting real pissy at him. You know, eventually Drizzt gets the figurine and becomes kind of the owner, master. It's weird because Guinevere very much has its own mental freedom. Like, it's, it's definitely not just some sort of magical slave. It makes its own decisions, and there's plenty, there's a couple of times where it just decides to not do anything when Drizzt asks for its help and that sort of thing. Also, the fact that it disobeys its first master in the first place is a pretty big deal. Yeah, did we talk about Zach at this point? Yeah, we did. Uh, and so then we go into the second book. You get Zach again, but this time he's a zombie. Uh, uh, this, um, this is, I just have never liked this trope of, if you kill a character off, I, I think that if you're going to bring them back, it has to make just complete sense and it has to fit well. And I just think that Zach dying was kind of drizz, you know, 
his final push. And I just hated this idea of, well, he's actually alive still. He's just a zombie. I just, I never like, when people get brought back to life, I just, it bothers me. Yeah, normally I definitely hate that with just bringing people back, but I thought they did a good job. I thought he did a good job because he's not the same. He is, it's the special ritual that, so in the second book, Malice is super out of favor with Loth because of Drizzt leaving. They kind of become in the stalemate, secret spy war type thing with the Hanets. And it's really bad. Yada, yada, yada. Eventually that ends. And she's like, okay, I'm going to get Drizzt. I need to do this special thing where I bring back Zach Nefane. It's a special ritual. Bring back Zach Nefane to go kill Drizzt because he's probably the only one that can. Uh, and that's because Deenan and one of the other sisters go and try to get to him. And he just like... Tears him apart. Yeah. It's- it's not even it's not even a contest so she's like okay zach's the only one who's really going to be able to do this so they he brings him back as a zombie he's pretty much mindless only controlled by malice and that's where you get the a lot of the hunt is that shade chasing him down and it's very terminator-esque in it, my yeah it, it is and it's but it also plays because you know you get to the point where zach nefane showed up but driz had just left and zach yeah. nefane got to the city and driz had just left so you keep building up to this eventual conflict, but yeah, it's just the sense of this cold machine gradually gaining ground on him. Yeah, you have Belwar again, who uh, he starts out really kind of PTSD and down in the dumps after that mining expedition failed, uh, and a lot of the second book is the mirroring of him getting kind of getting over that and moving on at the same time of Drizzt getting over uh, who he was in the city, that sort of thing, and moving on. Yeah, like we talked about with themes and plot, this idea that the second book is a lot about mental health and people dealing with that. And I think that Salvatore writes this really well, especially for the time frame. And just this idea, you know, Drizzt is dealing with this like extreme loneliness and then Belwar is dealing with this extreme guilt and they're both not able to fully come to terms with that until they find each other. They're able to kind of work each other out of those mentalities. And at the same time, you also have this other character, Clacker, they run into, who used to be this creature called a Petch, who I've never seen before. You know, I've never seen a monster manual or anything like that. But it's sort of like a underground sprite sort of thing that has a lot of control over rock but it's been polymorphed into a hook horror and the hook horror bestial mind is gradually taking over and it's it's really sad you got a lot of times where it's just like please kill me because i can feel the other mind taking over and i don't want to become a hook horror yeah it's it's definitely one of the darker parts in the second book yeah, I would definitely say the second book is the second book is pretty dark, and the beginning of the third book is pretty dark. They're yeah. all like dark in their own way, but it's because of the simple writing and and not you know it's not super descriptive or super gory. You can you can kind of gloss over, you can kind of miss it, but it is like on the surface, it is it is pretty it is pretty dark. I don't know. I guess after reading Game of Thrones in that sort of thing, that there's not a lot that is. Once you read something like that, it, when you read something else that's like dark but not that as bad, you're like, it's hard to feel the weight. Yeah. Because I mean, I know, and so again, eventually Clacker ends up dying, and that's kind of the first 
That's because it does that happen before or after Zach? Uh, right before Zach Zombie. Okay. Well, I guess because Zach is the first big sacrifice that is made in Driz's life, and that's where he kind of starts, you know, setting his own path. But then again, now he loses his friend, um, Clacker, who was helping defend him. And I know things like that continue to like kind of pile up on Driz, and that always is going to play a toll on his emotions and how he interacts with things because it continues to build on this idea of are these things all my fault and am I really any good for this world? And that, yeah. that's get, that, get play, that gets played out way more in the third book. Yeah, Driz loses all his like Gandalf-type characters. Well, there's really only two, but he, he loses them, uh, and that plays a lot into him. You also have this guy, Jarlaxle, who is the captain of this drow mercenary group. Um, he's not super important in the second book, He's just kind of there. He does a, well. He does some things that are kind of a big deal, playing both sides of the Hanat Jordan war, and eventually ends both. The, he's responsible for the end of both the Hanets and the Jordans, which is it's kind of wild. Very flamboyant uh, mercenary type type character. We don't really see too much of his character, but I, I assume he comes back later. Uh, yeah, I think that, yeah, there's a lot of people. I mean, this is just the first trilogy, and this is actually very much like Star Wars. You have the middle was written first, and then this was written, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. Yeah. Uh, the the first series with Drizzt is, I think, The Crystal Shard or something like that is the first book of it. Icewind Dale, right? I think that's what it's called. It's in Icewind Dale, but I think it's called The Crystal Shard. And it's, it's pretty well-reviewed. You know, we haven't read it yet, but that could be something coming up. Um, stay tuned. Yeah, stay tuned. But this is this is the prequel to that. So then in going into the third book, when he's up on the surface, you have the Thistledowns, which are just sort of this uh, family out on the frontier. And while they don't necessarily have a ton of personality, there is a lot of characterization given to them like they they you know you understand like this is a normal family you kind of there's actually a lot where you see a bunch of the conversation the characterization of them where you're like oh these are like kind of you know nice normal people this feels like a real family and then they die yeah i mean it's that it's that very prototypical farm family this is where you usually start your story and it would be that all of them were to die except one of them and they would become the hero of the story yeah. Instead, and that really got me. I think that part, because you have this nice little family, you think this is going to be Driz's way of finally connecting with people. And yeah. then in one fatal swoop, um, the evil Barghast. Barghast, yeah, comes in. And I was thinking, oh, he'll, you know, kill one or two of them. No, he kills all of them and yeah. leaves them and just leaves them there just to try and blame Driz for what's going on. And so then again, we have another instance where this is all weighing on Driz because now he thinks this is completely his fault for getting involved with his family. And he's yeah. just trying to find somewhere to feel at home and be welcomed. And he just like, it just won't work anywhere. Yeah. And, and as part of that, you've got this guy, Ronnie McGristle, who's a bounty hunter. And he just really has it out for Driz. He thinks he's the one who, he, he's the big impetus behind thinking Driz killed the Thistledowns. And that kind of haunts Driz the rest of the third book and, and McGristle's always trying to hunt him down and things like that. Uh, even though he's not like, I don't know, he's not that big of a threat. Like Driz could easily beat him and kill him or not necessarily super easily, but, but pretty easily. 
he's still someone who's always kind of after him, dogging his tail, that sort of thing. And McGristle kind of has his own arc, his own story, less so than the hunting down of Driz. The, the Driz being hunted is less of a thing because he doesn't even know it. Like, it's not, it's not that big of a deal. Whereas in the second book, Driz is, like, pretty aware that he's being hunted by something or that his family is hunting him. He doesn't really know how, but he knows they're coming after him. Who's next? You're going to do uh, Montolio? Oh, Montolio. I was, I was like, who's Montolio? So Montolio is our, is our Gandalf. <laughs> yeah. Montolio is our, well, again, Driz continues to have these mentors. You know, he started with Zach and Fane, and this is his next big one. And he's the one that kind of teaches him the more practical views on life and how to go about living his life. Zach and Fane was much more about, you know, this is how you be a warrior. If, if he's like the warrior coach, this is more of his uh, people coach. He teaches them, you know, how to read common, how to speak common, um, how to interact with the wildlife and how to know, like how to hunt things and how to take on enemies in certain terrains. And so he's our blind, also he's blind, which is, I think that, that's a trope, right? I mean, this, this, the, the, the blind sage character, right? Yeah, he lives yeah, in the woods of. by himself. Yeah. But he's really, he's the one that eventually introduces Driz to this idea of morality and how that morality actually plays into him serving a god. Even though Driz doesn't believe in that, he's like, well, I mean, if this is how you're acting, this is the god you're serving. And because of that, no, Driz not. eventually comes to this like realization that maybe he is serving some higher power. Yeah, which that, that was pretty cool. I thought that part was one of the best parts of the third book, in my opinion, of just when the two of them, after some stuff happens and Driz has to leave there, he goes up north and runs into, he kind of gets put out on his own again for a while, and you, you kind of get him going back into the loneliness, but now you see the character development where he doesn't fall into that same sort of depression he had before because he has uh, Mialiki, who's the, the kind of the ranger god um, that he follows. And he like, he knows that he's good, if that makes sense. So even though everywhere he goes kind of turns him out because he's a dark elf, he knows he's good. So he ends up going up north, kind of finding a place on his own because he hears that's where any rogue can find their place. He gets up there, gets sent off to a cave, and they're like, yeah, you can, you can have this. Just don't, don't bother anybody. So he's chilling out there, and then this little girl named Caddy Bree shows up, and it's very much, you can tell he's just so starved for interaction. He ends up, like, kind of becoming friends yeah. with her. But the, her adopted father, Brunor Battlehammer, the good old dwarf, is kind of, really, he's really suspicious. And so there's a whole dynamic between the three of them, and uh, McGristle actually shows up, and all that how all of that works Renor is very much the stereotypical dwarf though oh yeah hard-headed he'll talk his shit to you that's like i mean that's exactly when mcgristle shows up he's just like what are you gonna do but like yeah he's very gimli and like peter jackson gimli which is interesting because i think this is before the lord of the rings came out this should be i think the movies this this is 90s so yeah um but yeah yeah he's very he's kind of gimli-esque but he, i don't know he's fun so the different settings you've really got kind of i don't know three and a half different ones i'm not sure the, the best way to say this because you've got the underdark with 
the big setting of Menzo Berenzon, which is kind of this, you know, the crime city type, the mafia city type thing. And then you've got the Underdark proper, which is just like Australia level monsters, but they're everywhere. And it's a, just a really brutal and hard place to live. Everybody's kind of out on their own. But then you do have the uh, Deep Gnome City. We're not in that for super long. So I, that's why I'm hesitant to count. I don't know. Uh, I guess I would put that all as part of the part of the Underdark. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. Under, I, I think the Underdark is definitely a really interesting place. I don't love its depiction in these books. I think that there's more exploring to do. I loved, you know, we go into the the Mind Flare colony and I thought that was really interesting. And yeah. I would love to see more exploration of things like that. But besides that, you know, Menzo Berenzon, it's the typical crime-ridden city. Everyone's out for themselves. Um, and then besides that and the Mind Flare colony, you don't really see a whole lot. Because again, I think that the the, uh, the Virgin Evely colony is also very basic, just Nothing too intriguing, to, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I would kind of agree. I would, I, I, I like the Mind Flare part so much because I definitely want to see more of the evil that goes on in the Underdark because I feel like there's a lot more stories to be had there. Yeah, the Mind Flare colony is, is really cool and really interestingly described because that's not something you, I guess, typically see. That's not a monster we see a lot of, you know a lot of, um, but it's pretty cool. So then you have the kind of surface frontier that Drizzt ends up in in the beginning of the first book where you know it's pretty it's very sparsely populated uh this is also I guess where Drizzt goes and they kill the the elves um yeah it's very sparsely populated very wild and then he eventually goes and moves into this waterfall type area and there he meets Montolio and has to deal with a bunch of orcs but even still it's very you know the kind of sparsely populated very uh wild aspect what's also cool is Drizzt has never experienced seasons before I thought that was really interesting where he he was like trying to figure out you know winter hits and he's like what is this and he's trying to figure out how to survive and he's going all these nights where he's freezing cold and then finally those elves leave him some kindling and tinder to make a fire and yeah, they don't they don't super yeah. trust him but they still leave him some firewood and so he finally actually makes a fire so he's not you know freezing to death over here and so that i think that was very interesting and in seeing how someone and that's what i really liked going to the third book i felt like it really was this idea of exploring a whole different world and seeing how someone would interact with our world you know things we see every day and things every day you know if you're a DD player whatever but you know if i were to go camping I know I'm gonna put up a fire if it's freezing cold, but he's never experienced that before. He doesn't understand that. And so it's really interesting to see him interact with that and kind of how he's dealing with everything. Yeah, I think the only fire he had experienced before was like candles and if somebody cast fireball, like that was it. Uh, and then you have the 10 town slash Icewind Dale area that you see when he, he kind of gets up there and there it's just, you know, kind of stereotypical mountainous tundra type area. We really don't get a ton of the... Uh, it definitely feels like a prelude to what's going to happen. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. Going into the plot, each one is contained. First book, you have the family, the family dynamics we've kind of talked about. Driz kind of grows up and goes to school where he 
pretty readily beats everybody because he's been trained by Zach Nefane for a long time. And he's kind of gotten to his level or pretty close to his level. So then when he comes back, Zach Nefane is worried that the school has broken him. And that's something we see with Drizden there. He's in this constant fight to maintain his morality. Uh, and the one thing that he holds on to is like, they, there's kind of this indoctrination type class where they're telling them and there's all this rhetoric about how all the surface races are evil and that sort of thing. So when Drizzt finally does go and go to the surface uh, and he realizes that the normal elves are not evil, he, it'll just like completely shatters his faith and understanding in his people. And that leads to his confrontation with Zach Nefane, who Zach, Zach hears that he kills the child, and he's like, oh, he's broken, he's evil, so they have this big confrontation, and it looks like they're going to kill each other, and then Drist is like, no, I didn't kill him, and it's sort of their last nice thing, the classic, and this was the last they would see each other, because Drist goes out, finds Massage Hanet and Alton Devere ready to kill him. Um, he and Guinevar betrays Massage. They go on and, uh, well, I think Alton Devere blows himself up with a broken wand. And I think Drizzt kills Massage. And he's like, yeah, that's the last Dark Elf I'll kill. Um, then uh, while they are kind of going, while he's kind of coming back, the Doordans realize that they're at war with the Hanets and that they're out of Loth's favor. And they're like, oh, why? Uh, and they find out that uh, through communing with Loth that Drizzt didn't actually kill the child. So they're like, oh, no, <laughs> murder children. This is a huge problem. So they sacrifice Zagnophane. So they... they sacrifice their best fighter in order to keep Driz thinking that they can make Driz the next um, the next fighter and the next person. This was a big this was a big played yourself moment because yeah. I don't think come on, what do you think that Driz is gonna do when he finds out the one person he actually cares about in this world? Oh yeah, by the way, we killed him. We sacrificed him, but you're good now. You can be on our side. Loth is cool now. I don't know what they thought was possibly gonna happen there. So Yeah, so then Driz is like, all right peace, I'm out of here, uh, and just leave, yeets out with uh, Guinevar. So it's sort of this equal trade, though, because he killed Alton and Massage, who were two of the uh, the Hunnets' more powerful, like, wit magic assets, that sort of thing. But the uh, Doordans lose their two great combat specialists. So, I don't know. That's That's kind of the end of the book there. Yeah, so we can go on to the second book. Um, and like we, said, like we said before, the second book is a lot different. The second book is much more, because you have that origin story, and now you kind of have little pieces that go on in the second book. I don't think there's any overlying point besides Driz is being hunted by Zach Nefane, and eventually that's going to come to something. And I, did, I thought, because you know, at one point they said, oh, we're going to go to Menzo Baradon, and we're going to get you saved, Clacker. And that really got me interested because I thought that would have been a way better take than just him fighting Zach and Fane and Clacker dying. I thought it would have been really interesting to see him go back in the city and try and save Clacker. 
Yeah, I, I wish that it would have been really cool, but then they get captured by mind flayers, right? Like they make that plan and then get captured. Yeah. So, I mean, quick for the second book, you know, you have the beginning, Chris is out on his own. He becomes, his, you know, his second personality. He's the hunter. Yeah. And that's his big, he, he'll blindfold himself and go and fight enemies. It's, it's, it's his badass side, his side, that his, his natural side. It's his barbarian rage. Yeah. He kind of multi-classes barbarian. And so he gets through all that, and eventually he takes himself to what's the what's the first Nebuli city called? I don't remember. But he gets himself there, and that's where you start to he starts to kind of deal with that personal trauma because he's the reason he goes there is he's so sad and alone that he can't. He says, "I can't possibly do this anymore." He's like, "I'd rather die. I'd rather be imprisoned than have to deal with being alone for any longer." Yeah. So he's taken him to the city, and then Belwar finally comes back up, and they find him. And he speaks for Drizzt. He goes, this is, a good, this is a good dark elf. I don't care what you guys say. This is the only reason I'm still alive. And like I said, I really love that character dynamic of they're both helping each other because him being there helps Drizzt realize that he's not alone. He has friends. And then Drizzt being there helps him cope with this idea that it's all his fault. And this, this deep guilt he's felt for all these years. And even eventually gets him to go back out into the Underdark and lead a patrol, which is such a big deal because he was, you know, the honored, what was it? The Honored Bur Borough Warden, was that it? Yeah, Honored Borough Warden. And he, he finally goes back out on patrol with his people to, you know, go mining or whatever they're doing. And so that's a big deal. And I really liked how those characters interacted there. And then so eventually they're kicked out of the town. Well, Drizz is. They're saying, you can't stay here anymore. There's yeah, because they go, they go on the, the expedition. And then while then after that um expedition Zachnafane's zombies start showing up and kind of causing some havoc and they're like all right you're being hunted like you got to get out of here and Belwar is like all right well I'm coming too so then they find so they they're out they're surviving they run into the wizard which is just kind of like this quick interact they're like oh gosh we gotta get out of here we can't fight this guy and then they find Clacker and they realize that this guy used to be something else but that wizard that we found turned him into something else and this is also the first human they run into. And Drizzt is kind of like, are all humans evil? Are all humans like this kind of thing? Because uh, he doesn't understand that there's like a gray, he, that there can be a gray to a society. Because the Zverf Nebli are pretty much all good or good, all like yeah. sort of good, neutral, neutral good kind of thing. And the, the drow are pretty much all lawful evil. So when he encounters this human and it's this like pretty crazy like messed up wizard, it's like are all humans like this? But yeah. So they go back and confront him with Clacker and they're like, "Hey, turn him back!" But they accidentally kill him, uh, and so Clacker's stuck how he is. Yeah, which is, and that that could lead into so much more. But like we said, eventually they're talking about, well, there's one way we can do this. We can go to Menzo Barons on. They have wizards there. We'll fix them. But then you finally get. Drizzt and Zach, you know, face to face, and they get to, you know, face off. No, don't they get captured by the Mind Flayers first? Oh, I forgot about the Mind Flayers. All right, this is actually the most interesting part of the book. Let's not forget this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because then they're like getting ready to go, and then these Mind Flayers show up at their little uh, home that they found, and they're just like, "All right, you're ours now." Then that gets really cool because Mind Flayers, if you don't know what they are, it's a humanoid shape with an octopus head. Uh, they have a lot of psychic abilities. They can mind control people, that sort of thing. And they also eat brains. 
Uh, if you've ever run against them in D&D, like, that's basically what they're due. They're not super tough in a fight, but they'll hit you with a mind blast, kind of knock you senseless, and then eat your brain, and then you're just dead. Like, there's nothing you can do about it. You're just gone. Um, but if you can not fall for either of those attacks, you're, you're basically good. And that's kind of what we see when they start fighting. But at first, they're all captured. And so, like, Belwar is used as a slave to mine and fight in uh, competitive fighting pits for this sort of mind flayer friend group. And they also have the Guinevar stone and are kind of exploring it, trying to figure out what it is. Clacker is used as a herdsman for all of these other people that have, they basically just been worn, so worn out by being mind controlled that their, their bodies are just husks and they're not really useful anymore. So Clacker sort of herds them until the mind flayers are ready to eat them. And then he like gets them for him. It's, it's kind of weird. He's on this little rock island out in the middle of a, you know, bottomless pit sort of thing. It is funny the different roles they put them all in. I think it was hilarious that Drizzt was, his job was to massage the brain. Like a seasoned (laughs) warrior is legitimately there to massage the brain. And I also really loved how they got into the mindset of what they're thinking while the mind flare is at their end. Cause they're just like my master, no one can go against my master. I have to like stop that person from hurting my master. And it was so interesting to see that because I think that the mind flares are so interesting as a species. And I think it's really cool to have that explored a little bit more. For sure. And then there's this really cool sequence where as Zach is showing up, Clacker is beginning to break hold. Clacker is the, probably the most most likely to break hold because he's already got two different mindsets anyway what what's a third yeah um, he he's pretty aware he breaks out pretty early but just can't figure out how to get off his island and then belwar the mind flayer gives belwar a little bit of his mind back so he can use his uh, ability on his weapons in the fighting pits and that starts getting him a little bit of his mind back drizzt is completely like shackled it for the pretty much the whole time until he gets freed what happens though is the mind flayers figure out that the the guinevar stone goes to the astral plane so they go and go to like look at guinevar guinevar realizes this and just <laughs> tears one of them apart uh and then follows the other one back to the real world kills it there and it's immune to the mind blast of the mind flayers so it's able to like get belwar back to normal and then they go and rescue Drizzt. And then at the same time, Zach Devane starts showing up and just killing everybody. And the mind blasts don't work at him at all because he doesn't even have a, like a brain. And Clacker is able to figure out a way to escape. And so it just becomes absolutely chaos because it just everything is breaking down. The slaves are starting to get their minds back. And that's right. They're starting to get out. And that's when they see Zach for the first time. Yeah. Which is like, oh my gosh, that's my father. That's my He's father. He's still alive. Yeah. yeah, so, so Driss goes up there and he's like, hey, like, what's going on? And Zach turns on him and start, they start fighting. He's like, whoa, like, what, what, what is this? And they're just barely, classically, just barely able to make it out. And then there's sort of this chase sequence where they're on the run, making their way out. Uh, and I, you know, we could, I wish we kind of had more time to talk about the Mind Flayer stuff because it is really cool. But as far as the story, they, you know, they make their way out. They get to this giant pit of acid classic with all these different bridges over it that they ran into before when they were just kind of surviving and wandering around and that's where they have their big the big final duel of the fates which is 
also, let's not forget that it's over a vat of acid. Yeah. <laughs> the most important part, the vat of acid. Most important. <laughs> was, I thought that was great. Um, but I think it's a sick fight. I think it is a little uh, cliche, but I think it's good cliche because I don't really like the whole trope of this person coming back to life. But I think if you're going to do it, I think, the, I think the best way to go about it is a, a part of their soul is always going to be there. And I loved how the fight didn't end with, you know, Drizzt asserting his dominance and showing out I become stronger. He shows it by, you're in there. I know, like, I, I believe in the goodness of the, that was Zach Nefane. Please show that. And then he's a direct in- parallel to the Mind Flayer stuff. And we can, I want to I take this time to get into all the specifics of what's happening back in Menzo Baranzon. Yeah. So the whole time, you know, well, so it, it kind of starts with the Jarl Axel's mercenary group. They end up betraying the Hanets to the Doerden sort of. So the Hanets, like, big attack fails. Because of that, with the Drow law, their, their house has to be wiped out. But all of the, like, nobility and that sort of thing just become incorporated into the Doerdens, which isn't normal, but it gives... Uh, Malice does it because it gets her a lot of power. Uh, and she's still trying to reclaim her status with Loth, that sort of thing. And she's... Try, trying to get Driz sends out to a hunting party. They just get annihilated. It's not even a contest. Uh, the brother, you know, Driz doesn't kill any of them because he made his pact, but he like cuts off the fingers of his sister and uh, just sweeps the floor with the uh, uh, his brother uh, Dinan. And so they come running back and they're like, "Look, we're not going back out there." <laughs> so she's like, "All right, fine." She actually kills the matron mother of the Hanets in this like really cool um, sacrifice ritual. Sacrifice thing. Like, yeah, they're, they're like, oh, you thought I was going to sacrifice my consort husband? Surprise! We're sacrificing you. Uh, and the Spider Queen loves the sort of twist. Evilness. Themes, yeah. So the Spider Queen gives her the ability to bring back Zack to go and hunt down Drizzt. But it's this really taxing thing. Like, it, it really drains her. She is this, like, she's pretty old, but she, you know, elves. So she's still, like, really pretty, really high health, that sort of thing. And it just drains her. She becomes this, like, withered husk. This is Malice. And then that's kind of shown to be the the number one head family, her... her their leader is this sort of withered husk. And you begin to realize that the reason she is, is because she's done this ritual a bunch of times. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but Malice, like she's trying to, she's trying to send out Zach after him and getting frustrated. That's taking longer and longer. And that begins causing problems with her and Loth. And they're like, okay, if you can't do this, like we're going to kill you. And there's the thing with her kids are like, they're kind of ready to betray her. And like we're talking about and, and become the next, one of their daughters become the next matriarch, but they can't because she's still doing the ritual. So Malice knows this is her only shot. Like, this is it. Uh, and so when Drizzt is fighting Zack on this acid pit, she's sort of in control. And Zack is in his zombie state is like, while he's better than pretty much anything else that we run into, he's not better than Drizzt because Drizzt has gotten even more skilled while he's been out on his own. And so the only way she's able to get Zach to even really compete with Driz is to get 
is to give him more and more of his old mind back, to give him more and more of his old skill. That echoes the exact same thing that happens to Belwar, where Belwar is able to break out of the Mind Flayers thing because he gets more of his mind back. Uh, Zach is able to break out just barely because he gets more of his mind out. And yeah, that's, I mean, that's, you know, the, the two big sides of what goes on in the second book. And then because all this happens, eventually, you know, like we, like we said, we have the big battle of the fates. They have their moment together. He's able to break free. He goes off into the vat of acid. Yeah, because he, he doesn't, he doesn't, like, yeah, like you are saying, Driz doesn't push him off or anything. He gets his mind back and is like, all right, I only have like five seconds. Uh, you're pretty dope. Love you, son. Jump in vat of acid. Yeah. Um, but he did kill Clacker on his way in while he was still a zombie. And that part's kind of sad. And again, that's like I said, you know, another one of, you know, another big loss that is going to weigh on Driz's mind as he goes about. Because he does talk about that as like we transition to the third book. And just this idea of, am I the reason there's so many things going bad with these people's lives? And then so getting into the third book, we kind of already went over the beginning, but Driz ends up, he goes out into the overworld. Uh, what, what are we calling it? Surface. He calls it the, the surface, surface world. world. The surface, yeah. He eventually stumbles upon, you know, like we said, the family. He's kind of trying to integrate himself with them because he can't really speak their language. They can't speak his language. And the kids are all like, oh, this is really interesting. And all the town is really worried about it. But the meanwhile, you have this big band of goblins and uh, gnolls all run by, what was his name? Uh, well, it's two bar guests. I don't remember their names. It, they're, it's not super important. Basically, their whole thing is they, Bargas are sort of sent out into the world as they're young to eat souls. And then once they get enough souls to get big, then they go back home and are able to sort of rule, or like be leaders and that sort of thing. And so, so they've been feasting on this town for however many years. Yeah, just kind of slowly taking people bit by bit. And they've got a stone giant and a bunch of gnolls that are in their control. And so Driz shows up and they find out about this because he kills off some of their gnolls who, this is where, again, we start playing to this idea of morality because he finds his band of gnolls and he's like, don't attack this family. Why would you want to attack this family? And they're like, to kill, to pillage. And he, so that's why he ends up killing them because he can't let that happen because he, if there's no reason for them to fight them, they shouldn't. And so yeah, but also it's a human family and Drizzt is like, are these humans good? Or are all they all like the wizards? I don't know. And so he kind of has to make this choice of like, do I go with the humans or do I go with the gnolls? Like who is actually the evil one here? Who's actually the, like the aggressor or whatever. And he chooses to fight the gnolls. And that kind of causes him a lot of unsurety at first. Uncertainty. Uncertainty. Yeah. Word. And so, but then he starts to interact with the family and it kind of seems like they're this good, these good kind people and the kids but start kind of going out more. Yeah. And so they can't, so he shows up one time to try and help them and he can't and they're all scared. And then even the next time they go and find him, the oldest son doesn't, he tries to fight Driz and Driz basically just embarrasses him, gives him his sword back and they just run off and they're still scared. And this kind of happens a couple times where Driz ends up doing something that's clearly for good. It's kind of misinterpreted. And then the one person that knows the truth, so that in that situation, you know, the kids knew the truth. Later on, you're going to see that um, the head uh, dwarf knows the truth. And they kind of question, like, is that actually what happened? But the rest of the town is like, no, they're evil. They're evil. But because there's this big unrest about this dark elf, the Bargas see this as an opportunity to kind of cover their own tracks. Yeah, so they, they kill this Thistledown family after they have this, like, quickling sprite 
that steals one of Driz's swords. And so the Bargas kills the family and then leaves one of the swords there. The town nearby, when they show back up and like the family's all dead, there and they find the sword, or McGristle's there and he finds the sword and he's like, it's the drow. Uh, the, the town is like, well, let's call in the adventuring party. There's a ranger in this other town. They've got uh, these couple other soldier friends and an elf. And so they come down and there's this really cool in, in investigation type thing, like what you would genuinely do in a D&D game of them trying to parse out the clues and figure out what happened. And even though McGristle's constantly like, it's the drow, it's the drow. And he thinks it's, he's pissed off at the drow because the drow uh, just beat him in a fight with earlier. McGristle loses his ear because a tree falls on him and he uh, even though, and like the drow didn't even do that. Like McGristle literally cuts down a tree with his axe while trying to get uh, drizzed and the tree falls on him. And it does to me, it, it reminds me of, um, what's the word? The, like the kind of the person that just lies about everything and they start to lie so much they believe their own lies. Yeah. And I truly think in McGristle's head, as we get through it, I think he believes that Driz is the reason his dog is dead and the reason his face is messed up. When in reality, he knows Driz 100% did kill his dog. But it was okay. Didn't the dog like jump and then the sword? Yeah, I don't know. yeah. Dog it was very, it was very book esque. Like, oh, he didn't kill the dog, so that could be. But still, the whole thing with his face, it all was McGristle's fault. But in his head, it does not matter. He is completely that again. Like we said, with the motivation, he is completely like this person is evil. He messed up my life. I have to get revenge on him. And so, yeah. but then you kind of see his evil motivations, where he's trying to, you know, get money from this town who's in danger. He's like, oh, two thousand gold for this, and they're like, I guess we'll do that. But then you have the whole ranger party show up. They're like, oh, we'll help hunt, you, hunt down this, uh, this evil dark elf. And, that's and they start the to uncover the clues. Yeah. And that's where you get the concept of, they're introducing of the range. From my understanding, the ranger class originally was built around Aragorn. So it's this idea of kind of the woodsman, good with a sword and a bow, uh, good at reading the ground, interpreting clues, that sort of thing, based on the same Ranger Dunedain idea in Lord of the Rings, where the Dunedain, their whole thing was Rangers in the North, where they kept, they kept all these societies safe by hunting the monsters, and the, uh, the societies in the North didn't even know that they were there, uh, because they were just always in the woods fighting for them, and that's the kind of mentality that they give the Rangers, like the Rangers are out, kind of like witchers, fighting monsters, to keep these societies safe. And that's like a whole point of what the ranger class means. You know, this ranger but, should up and, and she's like, all right, like this is, if this is the drow, like we can hunt him down kind of thing. This is a big deal. But yeah, as and, you said, they start uncovering clues and they even right away and they go to the house. And they something's see, up. Yeah, they're like the family members, some of them have been eaten. Like the house is broken. There's no way the drow is strong enough to, to do these things. Yeah, like to the barn door. And I thought that was actually one of my favorite parts of the book because you kind of start getting this, this separation of what a normal person is and what these heroes are and these, you know, because yeah. that, that's a big thing you look at when you're playing D&D is, well, you're like this big, strong hero. You've done all these quests, these adventures, but these are just everyday people. So they're over here like, oh, it must be the Dark Elf. It just makes sense. And then they're, as soon as they're there, they already know that something's up. And I love this idea of them finding this clue and this clue and then putting the pieces together. And I found that to be really interesting. Just like this idea of a mystery that you know the answer to, but you're seeing these smarter, more intelligent characters put things together. Yeah, and so they start following Driz. Meanwhile, Driz gets pissed. He's like, oh, they killed this family. I'm going to go hunt these guys down. So he hunts down the bar guests. He just 
Barge is in there with him and Guinevar, and they just destroy all of them. It's a really cool fight, and it's probably the hardest one Drizzt has had to date. Like, probably harder than the fight with Zach, to be honest, because uh, he gets really beat up. Um, and it becomes a thing where he has to run from this adventuring party because he's got like broken ribs and one of his knees is messed up and that sort of thing. And so he's like really worried that they're going to catch him. That leads to a whole thing where they actually get, they get really close to him. So he sneaks in, sees that there's an elf and like tries to communicate with him, tries to talk and it just doesn't work. And the elf alerts the rest of the group, but then it also adds another layer of suspicion for the elf in the group where he's like, this guy could have killed me and he didn't like there's something obviously going on here. Yeah. And I find that, yeah, like I said, and this like, again, there's like a, a language barrier and they're not knowing what's going on. It's just them trying to piece things together. And I found that to be really interesting. And I'm never always, like I said, I, I don't always love the idea of this person being hunted, even though it's for the wrong reasons. Cause you know, you have that miscommunication, but I think it was really well done here. There's that idea of tropes, tropes are tropes until you find someone who writes it well. <laughs> That's very true. Yeah is able to sort of escape and then it gets to the point where the adventuring party is like yeah we don't really want to follow him anymore uh, but McGristle is like what no you can't do that blah 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 or they, they say he's dead because they fight a bunch of stone giants and there's this avalanche and they're like oh he's obviously dead we saw him like fall into rocks whatever besides we're really beat up and we had to go anyway Drizzt you know still alive wanders off to this area called like Dead Orc Pass or something like that and there's this river and so he starts camping out there by a cave, fishing in the river, and he's, like, living a pretty solid life. Like, he's fine uh, until winter shows up, and he starts having a really rough time. Uh, and that's where the elf from the adventuring party is the one who gives him some firewood because he realize, he's like, maybe this guy's not so bad, but he's, like, still watching him, still keeping an observing eye. But then Drizzt moves in with this really ornery cave bear at one point because the cave is just better. And that's where he starts catching the eye of Montolio because Montolio's friends with all the woodland creatures. And he's like, wow, this guy can make friends with, he's got an owl that is always flying around telling him what's going on. So he knows about Driz being there like as soon as Driz shows up. Uh, and so he goes, wow, this guy's like in there making friends with this bear, like this really ornery bear. Okay, he must not be so bad. And then you want to talk about all the orc stuff? Yeah, so this is where, again, the whole time that Driz shows up, there's this idea of, there's this orc band that's kind of like laying low. They're kind of letting the dark elf be because he hasn't really done anything to them until, why do they eventually go after him? Like, I, I think it's less that they don't know he's there so much as he's on the other side of the river and that's Montolio's side. So they don't want to so mess with him. When is the event, because I know that he eventually starts fighting them and that's when Montolio shows up, helps Drizzt and is like, all right, bro, you're my prisoner now, but it's more of like this joking manner. And then he goes, I'm nobody's prisoner. And then they eventually go, you know what, I'll stay with you. And that's where like, the relationship forms. But I can't remember why exactly Driz started fighting them. I don't remember the specifics. I know he crosses the river, and then that's where there's like a small orc patrol. And they kind of come out and attack him. And Driz just like beats the crap out of him. And then Montolio starts shooting at them and kind of saves Driz's life. And that kind of goes into what you're thinking. I think it's literally just because he goes into their territory. Yeah, anyway, so that's when, you know, you get this new uh, mentor-mentee relationship that Driz really hasn't had since he lost Zach Nefane, and he's able to teach him so much. This is, because you keep wondering, you know, where, where is Driz going to be able to become, because he is, like, the greatest hero, you know, in D&D lore, so it's kind of like, when is he going to learn how to speak common, and when is he going to be able to start, like, being more of this ranger character, and Montolio is that mentor to him, and teaches him, you know, 
even more lessons about fighting. You know, he gets to that part where he, um, he puts him in the darkness and he's like, just because I'm blind doesn't mean I can't fight you. Then again, I think we see another example of the mental health being put on display because Montolio, you know, he's upset that one time when Driz doesn't fight him to his full extent because he's like, you're doubting me because I'm blind, but that doesn't mean anything. And it's him dealing with his disability. And so you have this continuous uh, building a relationship, uh, Driz getting stronger in different ways. And then once again, McGristle shows up because yeah. where there is Driz, there is McGristle and he will find yeah. him. So uh, McGristle is hunting him down and he goes, finds the orc leader, this uh, guy named Grawl. And Grawl hates Montolio anyway. And he's like, look, uh, I'm hunting this guy. You're want to kill Montolio. Let's like work together and do this. So Grawl goes and gathers a whole bunch of orcs and it's very like Helm's Deep situation that I really liked. I thought it was a lot of fun. And of course they go and get their wargs or the, the, the wolves. They're not really wargs here. They go and get the wolves, which are led by a winter wolf, which is this giant, you know, dire wolf kind of thing. Uh, and so everybody has their opponent. Like there's, there's some giants, there's some, or there's a bunch of orcs. Uh, they set all these traps, which was really fun. Very like, not at home alone, but like there's, there's fire bombs and there's a bunch of crossbows set up and there's these bear traps. And so they go and they're ready. And then Grawl shows up and there's the very big Helm's Deep sort of thing. And you, you kind of see it where they're, they fight on the, there's the outskirt fight and then they have to retreat. And then there's the fight kind of more higher up and then they have to fall back some more. But they do, you know, they do beat them pretty handedly. And Guinevar kind of has its own adventure where it has to go and fight the Winter Wolf and is basically able to pull away that whole segment of the enemy force. Yeah, just it definitely feels like, um, it, feel, it felt like a fun fight to me and you got, you got like your gimmicks and all that. It didn't feel, I never felt like they were in danger in my opinion. It definitely felt like they were about to just handle these orgs. It seemed to me like Montolio might have been in danger in a couple points. But what happens fair. is Driz casts his darkness spell on Montolio's shield. Montolio basically puts all these orcs in darkness because he just like plants it down. And so all of them are in darkness ahead of him. So they're blind and they don't know how to blind fight. And Montolio's blind, so he doesn't care about the darkness and just goes and beats them all up. Uh, but Montolio's home does get really messed up. And then the bears show up. It, it's, yeah, it's, it's very Helm's Deep, Battle of the Five Armies, whatever, especially with the bears showing up. Uh, so they're able to drive off the orcs, and the orc leader is really pissed. Then there's this sprite that served the bar, the bar guest that now serves McGristle. And the sprite tells McGristle that Drizzt is dead, uh, that Drizzt died in the fight. Because he's done with it. He's like, let's, he's like, I'm tired of dealing with this dark elf, man. Yeah, the sprite is. So they go and wander off. Uh, meanwhile, Montolio and Driz kind of keep training, but Montolio is getting really old and he eventually like dies in his sleep. And while he, he's kind of doing this thing, uh, he's like, what are you going to do when I die? Cause he, he kind of knows he's going to die soon uh, being a human and that sort of thing. Uh, and Driz is like, well, I'm going to stay here and keep doing what you're doing. And Montolio is like, like hell you are, you're going to get out of here and go uh, adventure and, and um, save people and that sort of thing. He's like, well, where, where am I going to go? He's like, you got to figure that out. And gives him the whole religion lesson with Mialiki, who Driz starts following. Uh, and then, yeah, when he passes in his sleep, Driz is like, it's kind of a melancholy moment because he's like, 
ah, oh, this man died peacefully. It was good, but also he was my Gandalf. And yeah, I think that again plays into, you know, what uh, Montolio is dealing with because he's like, I don't want you to stay here. You need to go adventure. You need to go live your life. You, like, because I think even, so even though he was enjoying himself there, he knows that there's much more out there for him. And Montolio, especially being there, he was kind of like, this may, like, this is what I had to do, but it's not the best thing to do. Yeah, and this is still Driz very much with the whole being isolated, being alone. Because he's always, he's has his person in a couple different places. Like, he's got Zach, and he's got uh, Belar, and here he's got Montolio. But he doesn't have a people. He doesn't really have a group. It's just him and someone else. So then, this is the problem I had with this third book, is that seems like a book right there, right? Like, that's that's a completed story. Then you get basically these two different short stories and they're connected and it all goes together, but they seem like their own ideas. Cause from there he goes and wanders around with this. This is really strange. It's like a pain cult. They have this idea that the more pain that they feel or like there's a limited number of pain that's possible in the world. And the more pain that they inflict upon themselves, the less there is for other people. Yeah. Uh, but the thing, the thing with them is they just reminded me of panhandlers at that point. Because yeah. some of them are, some of them just seem kind of crazy. Like there was that one guy that was like, "Dark elf, kill me! Put your dark elf like evilness on me." But then the rest of them are kind of like, "Oh, a little extra money." And then they're steal, you know, when they get to the dragon, they steal a bunch. And then Driz is like, "You guys can have this." And they're like, "Oh, thanks, man. It's not like we don't have any." So <laughs> yeah, that's the thing is he's wandering around with them for a while, and going to all these different places, and still never really able to find a home. Uh, and he's with them for a while. It's like six years. And they eventually are going to this town. Well, and while they're wandering around, it's like six years. McGrithel is in some random tavern. And here's these people talking about a drow. And he's like, a drow? And so he goes and talks to them and is like, realizes that Drizzt is still alive. And so he and the Sprite, who sees still around with, and his one dog, uh, they go and get back on the hunt to find Drizzt going to this town with the pain cult. And so the Sprite like yeets on up ahead supposed to just be scouting but what he does is he opens up this door gets the group to go in by like crying help and stuff like that kind of locks them into this dragon's lair but it's a dragon that's had a symbiotic relationship with this town it was kind of funny yeah and i thought it that definitely i mean it was such a small story um and it was definitely just a very like you know little like niche part just put in real quick like oh they found this dragon and this is what happened and definitely kind of seems like eventually driz is going to tell a story in another book about well one time i dealt with this dragon because it was just, you know, very contained and quick. But it was also a cool to see Driz doing something way more. It wasn't about him just fighting. It was him using his intelligence and him thinking through a situation. Yeah, because he realizes he cannot kill this thing. So he pulls a yeah. Bilbo. He goes in there and is like, hey, I was this other dragon. Because he knows out of a book that he got from Montolio about all these different dragons and stuff. He's like, I am this other dragon. Uh, you want to help me? I've been polymorphed. You know, it, it's very Bilbo in the Hobbit-esque kind of have this conversation and he's able to convince the dragon to like do these things and look away. So he and his buddies can run to the other side. They steal a bunch of money. Um, they get out, no big deal. There's kind of a bit of a confrontation because Drizzt kind of gets a little prideful. He's kind of like, oh, I can do this. I can handle this, whatever. Because I think he goes and tries to attack it and his sword just like breaks or whatever. It just does nothing. And he's like, oh, never mind and they run off yeah and then you get to the point where mcgristle again realizes okay 
this because uh, they the reason they went down that way is because McGristle had heard that there was a dark elf again, and then he said, "Oh, the dark elf died in there." And then once again, he realizes, "No, this dark elf is not dead. He escaped." And then he realizes so, Brian lied to him. And so, in very like this again, kind of plays into you know how different characters their different motivations and the way they act. And McGristle ends up killing this sprite, who is the only reason he is not imprisoned or dead at this point. And yeah. he smashes him to bits in his bag, which is very brutal. And I think every every single time McGristle is written, you can feel how intense and, like I said, brutal his uh, characteristics are. And he just smashes the sprite that was helping him. And then again, sets off after Driz. And then they even say he finds all, you know, the, the people that were just begging for pain. And they'd never experienced such pain as they did with McGristle. So. Yeah. Again, yeah. just this really messed up guy. Because uh, the painter made and end up talking to some other people, or whatever, and they're like, "Yeah, you go up to Ten Towns, anybody can be accepted in Ten Towns. That place is like kind of crazy." And so just is like, "Oh well, it's been six years of wandering around, and nobody's let me in. Maybe I'll go there." And so they have this money from the dragon. He is like giving them to the pain cult guys, and they're like, "Oh well, let us at least buy you a horse." And there's a couple other things. Uh, it's so like a nice jacket or whatever. So he sets off north, and then McGrissel catches the pain colt guys, and like you were saying, he just tortures them to figure out where he's gone. And it's it is that very brutal line of they've never experienced, they've never wished for this much pain. Yeah, exactly. And then yeah, we kind of so get our final setting of the book. They kind of can you can tell is going to lead to you know whatever's next. Yeah. So just kind of goes up north. He's just kind of chilling out. He gets sent to this cave because. Even there, they still don't really want him in any of the towns because he's a you know, scary dark elf. He's kind of chilling out in the town. And then, like we were talking about earlier, Caddy Bree shows up, who is an adopted human child of uh, Brunor Battlehammer. And she really hates being locked in the cave. So she's wandering around and just kind of stumbles into Drizzt. And uh, he... They do it a couple times before they really get comfortable around each other and they end up talking and telling stories, that sort of thing. Uh, and again, it, it really parallels kind of what happened with the other family. Yeah. Of he was seeing them randomly and then he's kind of like, should I approach them? And he's going through, you know, the mental trauma of, oh my gosh, is this going to be bad again? Are things going to go wrong? But eventually, you know, the girl comes out looking for him and they get to interact. And Again, he's longing for that friendship. He's longing for someone else to talk to because he doesn't want to be alone. That's, that's his big the thing he's scared about the most in life. But Brunor is like really cautious. He's like, there's this dark elf. Like I'm not it, very paternal of like, this is going to be a problem. I got to go hunt this guy down. So he goes out where J Drizzt is and ends up getting attacked by this monster. And Drizzt like sort of saves his life, but doesn't actually. Brunor thought he was coming down to fight him. But later afterwards, once his blood cools, realizes like, maybe he wasn't. I don't know. So he's, he kind of has mixed feelings about him. And then, like we're talking about, McGristle shows up to the dwarves and is like, look, there's a dark elf up north. And Cadbury is like, and he's evil. And Cadbury is like, kind of like, tries not to say anything, tries not to give it away that she knows where he is. Brunor like, doesn't really care. He doesn't like McGristle just because how he acts. And so he's like, yeah, just get out of here. You can go do whatever, but get out of here. Uh, and that's when he kind of talks to Caddy Bree, figures out a lot about it. And Caddy Bree gets away to try to run up to Driz and warn him and gets captured by Roddy. And it's really weird. He like threatens to rape her and stuff, sort of. Yeah, that's, 
And I just think, again, you, you get to this idea that, you know, he's this human character, you know, humans are supposed to be these good people, but he is messed up and he has extreme problems. And that's what, I, again, I think Salvatore does such a good job writing his characters because I really felt, you know, afraid of this guy. This guy is messed up. He has problems. He's willing to go to any lengths to get what he wants. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Drizzt, you know, shows up, saves her, is fighting Roddy, and, like, you know, is pretty able to beat him pretty easily. Guinevar beats the dog. But Roddy is like, kill me kind of thing. And, and Driz has his blades like at Roddy's neck. And so he grabs the blades and tries to like shove them into his neck. And he's just going like nuts. It shows, uh, the, it shows the two extremes because McGristle is kind of like, he, he's kind of playing into what he knows. He knows that Driz won't do it. And so he's kind of like messing with him psychologically. And Driz is having to hold himself back because of, you know, like in his past, he's, he could become that hunter. He could become that evil version of himself but he has to um, exercise uh, restraint on himself. He cannot do this because it'll just lead him somewhere he shouldn't be. It's very Batman-esque, you know? Yeah, I was about to say that. And so, yeah, I've been, Brunor's been watching this whole thing. So after Driz kind of gets away, Brunor shows up and is like, hey, I'll beat you up. <laughs> and so the last thing we sort of see is Ronnie's like running away. And Brunor has this really weird conversation with Driz where he's like, not able to say, hey, you're welcome here sort of thing, but he does say it in his own way. It, it, it was kind of funny. It's kind of weird. And Drizzt is like, what, what, are you, what are you saying? What's going on? And then, the, and then McGristle once again comes back and is like, he's, and so now Bruner is like, you mess with my daughter. This is not happening. Yeah. He's like, what are you going to do? And he knows that Drizzt isn't going to kill him. But then you basically just, you don't even need to hear a fight. You just see McGristle leaving. He's like, all right, I'm getting my ass out of here because I just got whooped. <laughs> And I know that guy's not going to hold any restraint on me, so. Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of where it ends, plot-wise, uh, for the story. And Driz finally has a place to stay. Exactly. That's, you know, that's the, the big, big thing. That's the and big he's thing. super excited. For three books, and he finally has a place to stay. And so I guess, you know, that, that's kind of the big point of the, 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 this whole trilogy, moving into the next one. Him transitioning from Menzo Baranzon to becoming adapt to the surface world to finding somewhere to be. And so, yeah, moving on to the next ones. I mean, we kind of talked, we talked about the action going throughout. Um, anything you want to say about the action and the themes? The only thing I would say about the action is it seems strange to me. All the big monsters died super easy. Like the stone giants and that sort of thing. He's taken out with like one or two hits. And yeah, they're like kind of hard to fight and they're dangerous if he gets hit. But it was just wild to me. Like, I don't know. I'm used to playing D&D 4th and 5th edition. 4th is what I started in. Don't ever play it. It's horrible. Play 5th edition. Where, you know you got a lot of monsters that kind of sacks of hit points and AC and the fights are, I don't know. It takes a lot of hits to bring something down. And in this, they're just like pretty quickly taking stuff down. Uh, like he kills one of the stone giants in one hit in the fight at Montolio's where it's charging him. And he has this pike hidden in the ground and he angles it up, plants the other end in the tree and the classic, like the giant kills itself with its own momentum running into the pike. And, like, that's one hit sort of thing. Yeah, I, I really agree with that. I, and I think sometimes, I think even, you know, his fight with McGristle, it seemed like he, at times, struggled more there than he did with some of these extremely powerful monsters. Yeah. Now, McGristle was definitely stronger than I think, you know, you're led to believe at first. And he definitely, he's that barbarian, you see. You know, he has that extreme rage. And these hits aren't hurting him as much as they should, which really, in my opinion, plays into the D&D aspect of him being a barbarian. Yeah, that's true. As far as themes... Driz does seem to me like he's kind of the I'm not like other girls because he's in Menzo Baranzon and he's the him and Zach are like the only ones that are moral 
and we were talking about this, but kind of before we started recording, I think of it's the nature versus nurture sort of thing. Like this is a very evil society as far as the nurture goes. And it's just like, I guess the idea that Drizzt, his nature of morality is so strong that it's able to overcome the nurture. But I don't know. It just seemed to me like it just, yeah, it just kind of seemed like I'm not like other girls to me, but it's also the main character thing. This is where we're talking about of the twist on the hero's journey, because that's, not typically how the hero's journey is the hero's journey you know he's just like some random kid he's not that big of a deal drizzt is a big deal the moment he's born um but he still has to go through all these different things and a lot of like loneliness um and he has the hero's journey where he has the mentor and he goes on these different adventures but it's not typical i actually just finished reading the hero with a thousand faces where we get the idea of the monomyth and the hero's journey from and you do see how it is different from a lot of the typical typical designs that are written out in that. But I would say it is it is still kind of monomythic. No, yeah, for sure. But I definitely do think I really liked, um, you know, this also kind of transitions into likes, dislikes. But I really did enjoy kind of seeing this evil society and seeing kind of how one can survive in that if you're not the same way. And I mean, even like, you know, you're within this, you're in the school. And also, my favorite part, probably, of all of them is his setting in the school. I've always, I'm a sucker for that trope. Just, you know, learning, like, somewhere, you, you learn to fight. You learn to use magic. You learn about history. And I just think that's really interesting in any setting. Um, but I just thought it was so interesting to see, because you've seen this in movies and other TV shows, but I really liked how it was done here of, you're watching as the kids learn about how everyone else is evil. It's very much, you know, the winners write the history you know, they're in their own place. They're going to say whatever they want. So every other race to them, oh, these people are evil. They did this to us. They're evil. And so these kids are growing up and that's just all they know. So it's not just that it's an evil society. It's an evil society that's consistently teaching their kids to be evil. Yeah, and I found that to be really interesting. And just, again, plays into this idea of motivation of why people are the way they are. And that goes into the other thing from theme that I wanted to bring up that actually goes perfect. It goes perfectly with what you're talking about. How the gods subtly influence societies. Because Lolf is the whole reason the drow are really the way they are. Lolf likes these intrigues. It wants this, you know, the Spider Queen, she wants this world where all the strong are the rulers and the society is built on weeding out weakness uh, when the strong gets weak, another strong replaces it sort of thing. It's very it's very sort of doggy dog sort of stereotypically evil but oh, yeah for sure i think the way the reasoning is explained is well done and then you see when he gets to the surface and the surface societies especially with the rangers i mean you really the only good gods we really see on the surface is the mealiki with the rangers but uh it's that whole idea of mealiki subtly influences the rangers of like hey nature is dope and also you've got to defend people who can't defend themselves through uh you know being a ranger yeah no i agree i agree 100 percent. i again i think the best part of these books is definitely just the ex exploration of character and motivation and why characters are the way they are and i think the gods play a huge part in that in this series so i think super well done by r.a salvatore um and just to also touch on you know something else he did well we talked about writing his writing is very simple. It's super easy to digest. These books were, I mean, we, we got through them super quickly. Oh, yeah. Not, it, it, you never had to go, oh, you know, I might just take up like a day or two off of this book. It's just kind of heavy. You could get through them quickly. 
They're really fast. They're really fun reads. I think the way he writes is really accessible to everyone. For sure. But it's still good. Like it's his, you know, good cynic structure, yada, 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 all that kind of thing. Like solid writing quality. It's just simple. Like when something's evil, he just will call it evil. It's not something where you have to figure it out through examples and that sort of thing. Like he'll call stuff as it is or how he sees it, that sort of thing. But also through the, that one thing you get a lot of times with simple writing quality is you get like Star Wars level of stilted dialogue. And I don't think we had that. There is some stilted dialogue and you got someone like uh, Alton DeVere who he's just like, vengeance but for the most part like it's not like expertly you know award-winning dialogue but it's it's good yeah oh i agree with that yeah that's a very good point and that's something that i think is a pretty good tell of a character writer is their dialogue it's something we talked about with ready player one right like the characters in ready player one aren't necessarily the strongest part and as, as such, the dialogue is not it's, super It's strong. evident through the dialogue. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, what other likes, dislikes would you would you say? That's a good question. I, like I said, I think the school setting was great. I really loved everything to do with, I think every time they were exploring a new um, society, I thought that was really cool. I loved the mind flares and seeing that played out. I do think at times that, like, I think the first and second book, there's a lot of things. I think you could have just thrown those together to a point um, and been like, oh, Driz, because, you know, they say Driz has been gone for, you know, a decade. But it could have been, you know, Driz has been gone for a little bit. Let's go find him. Because it does, they do all feel very short and condensed, but that's also kind of part of the writing style and very, you know, uh, quick adventure, quick adventure, quick adventure. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I, I liked how it was condensed. I liked how it introduced a lot of the D&D world and D&D ideas really, really well. Really, um, it, adventurous kind of like we were saying exploratory when you're wandering through the underdark like things are explained but you also see how these are things you can run into in a game and uh it's just cool to see how it works the description of the mind flare society was really i yeah like you're saying that was really cool especially because that's like a monster you might like see but you don't really know much about um and then when he goes to the surface i thought the him the the language barrier was great uh, and him trying to learn that. And like when he meets Montolio, they have to communicate through Goblin at first. Yeah, like we said, I think that the way that Driz has to interact with the surface world and seeing how someone that's not from the same place has to try and overcome the difficulties there. Like we said, with the seasons, with the language, with the different races, I think he, Salvatore writes that extremely well because it's really hard to kind of write something as foreign to you when you know it so well. Uh, yeah, I thought that was great. Uh, what would you rate it? I can't give it anything crazy just because it's, I, I, I think it's a good story, but I don't think that it like blew me out of my, you know, and I think it, I also really like, I think it's really accessible. I think that if you want to direct something like this, it wouldn't be hard to kind of sit down and, you know, tell your own little D and detail, which I think is cool for anyone wanting to write something. I'd probably give it an eight. I think, um, an eight, well, I guess for me, that'd be a, a B or a B minus probably. Yeah. That's, that's something I've kind of realized when we did Ready Player One. And I was like, man, if anybody listened to this and they're like into high literature, they're like, all right, these these guys have no literary credibility. And it's like, well, I'm kind of rating it for what it is. So Exactly. For what it is and in its genre, I think I would agree. It's like a solid seven, seven and a half, eight. Like for what it is, it's pretty solid. It's not something that like blow you off your seat, but 
you know, I've read a decent number of just like independently Kindle published stuff and it's much better than any of that. I've read some other just like general fantasy that's not like, you know, part of what you know is the, the big good stuff is like Sanderson and uh, The Wheel of Time and Lord of the Rings and Aragon, all that kind of stuff. And this is better than most of those. So I would definitely say for what it is, seven and a half, eight is, I think is very well warranted. It's, it's pretty solid. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think so that- Other media. Sure that, Wait, what? Were you going to say something else? I was just going to say that for, I think that you could probably have a very similar story that's even more exciting. And that's where I would probably, you know, raise it up to an 8.5, a nine, you know, that A tier. Because I'm sure that some of these books are going to get really exciting. There's going to be a lot, like the plot's going to be a lot deeper than any of these books was. Yeah, I would like us to do the Crystal Shard trilogy here at some point. Before that, other media. And this is something I'm really excited about because I just saw news about it. A D&D movie is in the works and Chris Pine has been tapped as one of the, one of the actors in it. And this is as of like December of 2020. Um, so I don't know where that's going. Chris Pine obviously could not play Drizzt, but if they are doing a D&D movie and they've done D&D movies in the past and they're not good, they should seriously do this. Or I, I think this is one of the best ones they could do. It's super popular in the D&D community. And I think especially, like we were saying, these books are very accessible. And I think that anyone can kind of get behind it. And that's why I was going to say, I think these would make great movies. And usually I would say a TV show from a book, but these, they're so short and condensed that it's really easy to digest it all in a movie format, in my opinion. I would agree. And this would be, you know, everybody's always looking for, to build a franchise. This is something you could build a franchise of, this character moving forward and that sort of thing i don't know if you'd be able to condense all three of these books into one movie as far as the origin story type thing they might have to play around with the story you know change it up a bit to make it to make it where it works i i do think this would be a great first movie a great place to start so uh, wizards of the coast whoever is building the writing the story for the the movie somehow listen to this this is our i guess our recommendation Unless yeah, you have like, anything else to say on that. You know, we have the MCU, we have the DCEU, which is yeah. something. But what about the D and DCU? So there we go. What who would you who would you maybe cast as Drizz? I as Drizz? Yeah, I'm having I'm having a hard time. Because I don't you I know, also I'm, don't know a ton of actors. Just so. watching the Witcher series and reading this after, I've been seeing Henry Cavill with his white hair and just darker skin throughout this. But I definitely think that there's a better person to play Drizzt. So does get into this is this blackface, and that's a that I think is a valid question, and maybe where there might be some hangups as for introducing this character. That's I think that's a very good point, especially in today's society. I think it's definitely something that should be thought about, and I think that a lot of people should be considered for the role if it were to be a movie. But you have to be very careful with that because you don't want to put anybody in an uncomfortable situation. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, that I feel like that would be the biggest hang-up with playing this character and where some of the story might have to be changed. I don't know. I don't know. We'd have to see because it, then you get, if you have all Black people playing the Drow and the Drow society is this inherently evil society, it's like, hmm, I don't know. Yeah, it's like, it's like we're hopping back to, uh, what is it called? Uh, the Dark Heart or the Cold Heart? What is it? 
Oh, the yeah, I know what you're talking about. The book where as they go further and further into Africa, it gets more and more like. Uh, and then not only that, uh, but I also was thinking of Lovecraft and just. Yeah. You start writing it like that and then it's obviously what they're going to go with. Yeah, I don't think that was the point that was meant because then you see when Driz gets to the surface and there is a lot of the racism that follows him. But he's like, look, I'm not bad. And I think it's also trying to say that the Drow Society is evil because of Walf. I feel like that's very much said. Again, it's much more that the book consistently goes about it and it's not about race or who you are. It's all about like the ideals you follow. Yeah, I would agree. It's something that could definitely be contentious and definitely be misconstrued. It would be really hard to to write in film, I would expect. I think if it was done right, it would still be good. I'm not I'm not sure. It would be it would still be hard. I guess I could say that as anybody who is who is working on writing this. Uh, are you looking up that name of that story? I can't, it, I can't find it. Heart of Darkness. Heart of Oh my goodness. Yeah, we were so close. Heart of Darkness. Yes, exactly. And yeah. Yeah, it's like I don't think that's what Salvatore was going at all. Yeah, I don't. I agree. I don't think that was what the point is. But that's it for today's after the story. Catch us next week. <laughs> Whenever we, we should probably come out with an outro, but we'll figure that out too. Yeah. Do we want to do Dune next? Go ahead and say it now. Uh, I haven't finished Dune. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, we'll figure. I, it out. I I I have an idea of what we'll do next, but. It'll be a mystery for you guys. You can find that out next week.